Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. In this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, our guest is Chandra Crane. Chandra works for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship's Graduate and Faculty Ministries and is in the process of finishing up her Master of Arts at Reformed Theological Seminary. Chandra grew up in a multi-ethnic, multicultural family in the Southwest and is now happily transplanted to the Deep South. Chandra is passionate about diversity and family and is married to Kenan, a civil engineer, and they have two spunky daughters. In our conversation, Chandra shares about her new book, Mixed Blessing, Embracing the Fullness of Your Multi-Ethnic Identity. Chandra's intelligence, sense of humor, and strong voice inspired me both in her book and in our conversation as we discuss the intersection of cultural identity development, gender, and faith in Jesus. I hope you'll find this conversation as meaningful as I did. Thank you so much, Chandra, for being a guest on the podcast. Can you begin by sharing a little bit about your faith journey and how that has shaped you? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I became a believer in college, actually. So when I came into my faith was also the time when I was asking myself, what am I going to do with my life? What do I want to study? What is my calling, right, in a general sense? And once I became a believer, what is the Lord calling me to do? And so even though I found myself in a lot of contexts where there was kind of an implied either you leave your faith at the door and you bring your brain in or the opposite, Mm. you leave your brain at the door and you explore your faith that didn't make sense to me. What made sense to me was this idea that I have this brain and God has given it to me to use and to grow. And so for my faith journey, that it always started with a question of academia and of learning and of a love of books and being a bibliophile. And then I also, as I was young in my staff work about 15 years ago, your director, Karen Guzman, was my supervisor. Nice. And yeah, yeah, at Emory. And one of the things she taught me right out of the gate was to do an inductive Bible study on Jeremiah 29 in the first, what, six chapters of Daniel. Mm -hmm. And to have that framework of a word to the scholars in exile. And so as I was working with graduate students and preparing to start seminary myself, just that context and that framework of what does it mean to pursue God? in Babylon and not to say, Ooh, Babylon. Oh dear. We're going to lose our faith. But instead to say, Oh wow. Babylon, the place that the Lord wants us to pray for this, this is the place he wants us to seek the prosperity of so that we can Mm. follow him more faithfully. And so I've been very blessed to have those mentors in my life to help me say, how can I be true to all these parts of me? How can I be passionate and have faith and listen to Holy Spirit, but in the context of having a brain and loving to read and not being comfortable with easy answers, but insisting Mm -hmm. on deep conversations and even like Job daring to ask God questions, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, then when you do that, the Lord comes back and says, oh, my sweet child, where were you (laughs) when I created (laughs) the earth? But he encourages us, but he's glad we asked that question so that he can give us the answer that is him. Hmm. Yeah, so you shared a little bit 
briefly there about your own academic background, although maybe you were on ministry staff at Emory, yes? Or were you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. I, I started out at Emory and at Georgia Tech. Gotcha. Yeah. So with most of our audience being professional women or women in higher ed, can you share a little bit about your academic journey and how that has led to where you are today? Absolutely. So I'm about to finish up seminary. Praise Jesus. I know. 10 years later. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. 10 years. To be honest, I feel a little salty that I'm only getting a master's degree after 10 years, right? That feels like it should be a (laughs) master's degree and a PhD, but that's okay. Obviously it took so long because I was part-time doing writing and working and having a family and having it all, which is an utter lie. Uh, (laughs) So I was squeezing in seminary where I could, but it's definitely been, journey is a great word for it. Journey is Mm. an important word for it because even as I'm wrapping up my time in seminary, I'm realizing that I will always be an academic. I don't think I'll be pursuing any more degrees. We'll see. We'll see what the Lord has. But just that sense of realizing that I'm a legitimate scholar and Mm -hmm. finding my voice. I think that's so hard for us as women. That's so hard for us in the academy. That's so hard for us in the church, no matter what type of academy or church we're in to say, Mm -hmm. I've been gifted with this brain and this personality and I enjoy academic pursuits. I love research. I love writing. I love, like I said, asking those hard questions. And so reconciling that for those of us who are wives or mothers, with that, for all of us who might have more girly tendencies, reconciling it with that. And then for those of us, I mean, like me, who are Tom girls, reconciling it with that. What does it look like to be in the academy, to be in these professional spaces, to be a professional, to say, I'm an expert in my research Mm -hmm. area, but that's not all of me. I also have other aspects of me and you don't get to put me in any of your boxes. You don't get to just put me in this academic box where apparently I have no heart and no soul. And you also don't get to put me in this, oh, isn't she cute over here playing with the boys box? No, uh, I'm a pretty smart person. Does that answer your question? Just that sense of like finding out how I belong in academia, Mm. in the professions. Yeah, absolutely. And all of those parts of you that you just described really come through in your book that you just wrote, um, Mixed Blessing, Embracing the Fullness of Your multi identity. I don't know you super well. I met you, I think, last year when we were at a GFM, which is Grad and Faculty Ministries Conference. And I remember in advance asking my own team with women in the academy and professions, is it appropriate to wear Chuck Taylors to this conference? And, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, they were like, yeah, that's fine. And then there was one day that you walked into the room and I believe it was Karen, my director, who pointed at you and said, see, look, because you also had Chuck Taylor's on. And I was Uh like, yes, yes, I'm not alone here. (laughs) You're not alone. (laughs) So yeah, so all these parts of you come through in your book. One, your intelligence. Two, your sense of humor. And three, the one I love the most, you're not afraid to speak up and use your voice. Yeah, I really appreciated reading some of the stories that you share about the ways in which you have advocated for yourself and for others. And so anyway, all this to say, the book was fantastic. I loved reading it. Can you share a little bit about what led you to writing it? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the converse. I love converse. (laughs) I collect them. I just not really a high heels kind of girl, kind of woman. And I think that's been part of the journey in getting to writing the book is realizing that's okay. Mm. that I can still be whatever legitimately means, but I can still look at myself and say, 
I am a strong woman who can write a book, who can do this thing. And I don't have to look a certain way, right? I can Mm, walk into a meeting room in jeans and chucks and a sweater and say, yes, I, I belong here. So that, like I said, is a journey and not an easy journey and an ongoing journey. But I think it stemmed from that hunger to learn more about the world and learn more about myself and learn more about the world around me. And that came through books, right? Mm -hmm. As a kid, reading books, nonstop, loving books, always being surrounded by books. And so, for example, at that conference you mentioned, I was always hovering around the book table. It's one Mm -hmm. of my favorite places to be. I'm actually an outgoing introvert, whatever that means. So I've been told in the sense that I enjoy smaller groups of people, like I can enjoy a party and I can get ramped up and have a blast, especially at conferences like that, where you know so many people and you only get to see them every so often, but then it exhausts me, right? Mm -hmm. Then I'm just done and I end up missing the plenary the next day (laughs) because I spend (laughs) too much time hanging out with people and then I'm, I'm so frazzled and overwhelmed, but being at the book table and having conversations in small groups and picking up a book and having someone say, I read that, it's so good. Or, oh, did you read that? What did you think? That's some of my favorite things to do. And so as I did that and had these conversations and shared that I wanted to write a book, that I've always wanted to be a writer in some capacity or another, having those folks say to me, yeah, we would love to see you write. And, and so that's folks like like you guys, right, at the well saying, sure. yes, please, will you share this article with us? Or Al Shi, who's my editor now, was the one who was manning the book table back then. And mm-hmm. I was always standing around and going over the books. And at a certain point, the books that I had loved so much started to run out of print. And one in particular was a book about being mixed ethnically. And so I started saying, where's the book? What, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to get it reprinted? And mm-hmm. at one point in time, having someone say, well, what if God is asking you to write it? Right. And just that, that kind of being in those spaces and marinating myself in books and other people who love books that really opened those opportunities for me, as well as having really gracious women, my counselor in Atlanta, Susan, a writing mentor that used to work for InterVarsity, Lisa, another multi-ethnic author, Sunday, who wrote one of those books. Right. Yeah. Um, And then Karen, right, as my supervisor, and then some really good brothers. Like I said, my my editor, Al, my coworker, Andy, who's one of the first ones to have said, why don't don't you write this book that we need? And also my friend from seminary, Jamar, all of them affirming that word in me and saying, okay, why don't you submit a proposal? Okay, you submitted the proposal. Now what, right? And just walking me through those steps of not just writing it, but discerning. Is this a good time? Is the time now? How does this impact my family? How does this impact my studies? And definitely that sense of it's okay to do this in fits and starts. I think there's almost this mindset when you come up to something like a book or a degree or a promotion that says you're on this path. Now you have to see it through and you can't let yourself get derailed. And if God really is blessing your work, you'll just sail right through. And I don't even think that's necessarily said or spoken out loud, but I think it's an undercurrent, right? It's this idea undergirding everything else. And so finding people who could help me reject that narrative and say, no, you wrote the proposal, but if it's not the right time to turn it in, that's okay. Or having walked with students in the past and saying, okay, you you didn't pass your quals. You're going to receive the master's and you're going to leave the PhD program. 
And that's okay. It hurts and it's sad and it's hard, but you haven't failed anyone. Yeah, finding the freedom to that made writing a book seem a little less terrifying. A little. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think you raise a really good point that women in particular probably struggle with, I don't know, more so than men in the sense of, can I do all of these things, right? And when is the right time to do it? Because there's never, there's never a good time to do any of these things, like write a book or go get a second degree, especially if you're raising children. And yeah, so I love hearing the story that it took 10 years to finish seminary or it's taking 10 years. For me, likewise, in grad school, I had that pull of we could kind of choose our own pace and Mm -hmm. I chose the four year pace, one class at a time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I watched the younger single women (laughs) come in, take all the classes, finish their degree. And I'm like still sitting there. (laughs) So Uh Uh yeah. Yeah. But I love that you were able to kind of fight against that narrative and choose your own path. It's not necessarily, we have to do it the way everyone else does. So. Right. Right. Which is I think something that women bring to the table right? Is that because we're already breaking norms and we're already pushing back on what people expect that we can be leaders in that way to say, hang on, why does this have to be done in two years? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll say the name of your book again, too, for those who are listening, it's called Mixed Blessing, Embracing the Fullness of Your Multi-Ethnic Identity. And throughout the book, you acknowledge that being multi-ethnic has brought both privilege and pain. And you wrote, mixed people and those in intentionally mixed spaces understand the feeling of never quite being at home. But we also can make a home wherever we go. We can sit in the tension of the seemingly contradictory concept that this earth is not our final home but also that we have been brought here by the Lord. It relates a little bit to what we were just talking about as women as well. Can you say more about some of the ways that you've experienced both privilege and pain, specifically as a multi-ethnic woman in academia? Yeah, seminary. <laughs> seminary has been rough. For the entire time, I've pretty much been the only woman in my program. And in fact, I switched programs from the Master of Divinity to the Master of Arts just so I wouldn't be in seminary another 10 years just realizing it's time to go. It's time to move, to move on to different things. And I think it's not just being a woman on a conservative campus, but because parallel to my ethnicity, my theology, my politics are in this seemingly contradictory space, right? Mm -hmm. So in that tension of this earth is not our final home, but also we live here for a good long while for our lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm too liberal for this group. I'm too conservative for that group, too outspoken here, but I'm too passive in these ways. And so whether because I'm a woman or because I'm mixed, multi-ethnic, like I said, people want to put me and others, we all do, right, in a box. Mm -hmm. And when they can't put us in that box, it makes them feel nervous, uncomfortable, maybe even afraid. Mm -hmm. And so one of my favorite things when I was pregnant with my second daughter was I worked in the seminary bookstore. And so the new guys, you know, the 22-year-old guys would come in and they're excited and they're a little full of themselves and they're also nervous. So they come blustering in the door and just as they would assume that I was studying counseling instead of theology, which oh, 100% nothing wrong. Yeah, I mean, nothing wrong with studying counseling, right? Like, beautiful, sure. calling, but not my calling. But most of the folks on campus who were studying counseling were women. Yeah, all of the men on campus were studying theology. Hmm. And so 
they would come to the front counter and assume that I didn't know what I was talking about. And they would say, oh, well, you know, I need to find some books on Hebrew or Greek. So, and I'd say, oh, well, you know, I've had those classes and they just, (laughs) they couldn't fit me into that category, right? They're looking at me like, no, but you're a woman. And then if they finally made that shift, then it was kind of this assumption of, because I'm standing there not very fancy, right? I don't have much makeup on, may have a ball cap that day. And so then their assumption is, oh, well, I must not be very feminine. I've actually been told I wasn't a good mom for not being home with my kids. That's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Right. But then it was behind this tall counter. And so I would say, I can help you. I know what book you're looking for. I've had this class. And I would come around that tall counter and just like waddle around and watching their faces as every stereotype they had was just crushed because I had this big old belly. And so I'm coming out around and I'm taking them to and saying, yeah, we use this textbook and I found this resource helpful and you might need these flashcards for your Hebrew, but I'm staying there in jeans and chucks with a big fat belly. I, I just loved <laughs> shaking their stereotypes a little, right? right? And it just, it made me laugh every time because then they're trying not to stare. And it's hilarious because it's born out of pain. Right. right. It's it's hilarious because we laugh so we don't cry or we laugh and then we cry and then we laugh some more. Mm-hmm. And just realizing because I'm a woman, they still would have stereotyped me. Right? right. Even if I had fit into their neat categories, they still would have assumed things about me. And so there's a certain almost morbid joy in being able to blast those stereotypes. And that's why right. my tagline is cheerfully defying stereotypes. Right. Yes. That is a privilege I have because I was going part-time and because I do have an amazing family and a husband backing me up to be able to take that pain and use it as a privilege to go into those spaces and say, no, 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 you don't get to judge all women. You don't get to look, you don't get to judge your wife who's at home homeschooling your kids and assume that you can put her in a box either. Any more than you get to judge me who's here while my kids are in daycare. You don't get to tell either of us who God has made us to be. Mm. That's not your job right? That's God's job. And so I think that's one of the joys, like I said, a kind of perverse joy of being able to say, oh, you want to play the stereotype game? Let's go. Let's have these discussions. But, But it is exhausting. It is exhausting to never quite be at home. It is tiring to feel like, okay, here I go. Time to cheerfully defy these stereotypes again when I start a new class. I think that's, yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people have if we stop and think about it in the same way that some of our biggest quirks are also some of our biggest strengths Mm -hmm. is that some of our biggest privileges can also bring pain, but some of our areas of the most grief and pain can be submitted to the Lord and become a privilege. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me the way that you sort of, as you say, cheerfully defy stereotypes. It reminds me of an activity that we actually did in one of my counseling classes because I did study counseling as a woman (laughs) where we would say, I am, and you would fill in the blank, like Christian, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then say, but I am not this. And so we Mm. would go, we went around the, the classroom in one of our intensive weeks and kind of practiced learning how to be uh, more culturally competent, right? It, with our clients to not make assumptions about who we think they are, but allow them instead to tell us who they are. So as you said, we all do that. We all, as we interact with people everywhere in the world, we notice things about them and we put them in 
boxes, not necessarily mm-hmm. because we're bad people, but because mm-hmm. it's just something that our brains do to categorize and right. make sense of the world. But then exactly. it, it has this bad flip side to it where we are making assumptions. And as I like the way you phrased it, like nobody else gets to tell me what my calling is right? Mm -hmm. It's God who has created us to be who we are. Anyway, um, so so along with that, thinking of young women who, especially women of color who are just beginning their own journeys in higher ed, maybe a similar journey to what you were on, what word of encouragement would you offer to someone who's just starting out in academia? I think as I remember myself 10 years ago, starting out, I I was asked by one of the professors, are you ready to engage some of the young men in your classes who may be a little bit closed-minded? And I remember blithely saying, yes, sure, it'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) And now, you know, I'm the old cynic. But I think in fits and starts, I've learned to take that sense of hope and joy and optimism and not lose it completely, but just submit it to the Lord and let it be formed and let it be framed and let it be nurtured by the Holy Spirit in a way that doesn't ignore some of the ludicrous things that have been said to me in a way that doesn't ignore how hard any grad degree is to get. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to get to this place where we're comfortable and even not surprised anymore by what people assume of us and to where we can actually enjoy and be appreciative of the ways that we are different than other people's assumptions And also the ways in which we do fit people's assumptions, right? That that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. The problem is if we get stuck in our stereotypes, if we get stuck in assuming things about each other. Mm -hmm. And getting to a point, I think, as in this case, maybe a young woman, where we are truly comfortable with how we embody womanhood, and especially in academia or in the professions, how we embody being a woman of color, that it's a lesson we have to learn again and again and again that it's okay that we don't fit. It's okay Mm -hmm. that this is hard. It's okay that we're exhausted, especially right in 2020. Absolutely. Gosh, I saw y'all's series on starting grad school and thought, oh, that's just beautiful. That's so important because I can't imagine, I cannot imagine starting any type of school, but especially grad school this past fall. Blessings and (laughs) prayers to all, all the folks and all of the women and all the women of color who did that. And I think there's a certain beauty in as much as you can at the beginning of your career saying, I'm about to go through something and I have no idea what to expect and God's going to get me through it. Mm -hmm. And, and then that I can learn from the past in the ways that I have been ignored or looked down on as a woman, hopefully and prayerfully, those will be few and far between, but they will be there. And that's actually a chance for me to grow. That's actually a chance for me to say what men, in this case, literally men, (laughs) intended for evil, God intends for good, right? He's going to do a good work in me in this. And it is a lesson that other people who are people of privilege also need to learn, but they learn that in a very different way. Yeah. And so just figuring that out, figuring out the place where I can say, it's okay to cry. It's important to, to rest. It's important to find community elsewhere. Yeah. And just to all of the young women and women of color who are in grad school, who are starting grad school, or who are in a new position or who have been in in the professions for a long time. I think I see you, sister. I see you. And I want to see you more. I think when we can find these spaces as women to share our stories with each other and point each other back to Jesus, which it should be the pastors, it should be the professors, but it 
isn't always. Mm. So as much as we can do that for each other as women, as peers and as mentors, I think is really a beautiful thing. And I think it's really a biblical thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm realizing even as you're sharing your wisdom, even my question is stereotypical because I said two <laughs> other young women and you may be a woman starting a grad school program or any program in, in academia at an older age. So forgive sure. my biased question, right? But yeah, so going back to your book a bit too. Well, one, I've already read the book, so I know a bit more about you than our listeners probably do. Would you mind sharing about your own multi-ethnic background? Sure. So one of the things that's interesting for me that I think gives me a great deal of empathy and a great deal of being comfortable with seeing past people's stereotypes is I am both multi-ethnic and multicultural. So ethnically, my birth father was a Thai national. He met my mom, who is white American, when he was over in the States for college. But things didn't work out between them. And so it was me and my mom for the first five years. Also, shout out to all of the single parents out there. And the single mm-hmm. moms, that is, whew, that is, that is a gift <laughs> and a calling. And yeah, that's a beautiful, harrowing, hallowing thing, I imagine. But so my mom remarried when I was five and she married a black man. And so he adopted me. He was my dad. He's the one who taught me how to ride a bike and walked me down the aisle. And so I had that upbringing with that white mother, but a white mother who was in a lot of ways influenced by Thai culture and then a black dad in the middle of a about half white, half Hispanic hometown in New Mexico. Hispanic is the preferred term there or Chicana, Chicano. So being surrounded by so many different cultures and having this affinity and this tie to them, no pun intended, (laughs) in addition (laughs) to my Thai ethnicity, that really left me in a place where I couldn't just hunker down in whiteness. I, I was raised in a lot of whiteness and I'm definitely repenting of a lot of my white normality and my white normativity, but I couldn't get quite as comfortable as I would have otherwise. Thank you so much for sharing just a little bit about your own background. One of the sections in the book that really stood out to me was the chapter about you wrestling with the concept of what it means to find your identity in Christ and how you kind of worked through your own multi-ethnic identity development in conjunction with the idea of having our identity in Christ and also how the church has used that phrase, identity in Christ to dismiss the importance of cultural identity development. And you wrote, one phrase often used to diminish the distinctions and dignity of people of color is the hallowed phrase we just explored, identity in Christ. This mysterious, holy crux of our faith that we're no longer in and by ourselves, but instead have union with Christ and thus with each other is bastardized when used to force sameness and false unity in the body of Christ. Could you say more about your experience related to that identity development and the intersection of faith and ethnicity and culture? Sure. It's what I was getting fired up about a little earlier, right? It's this idea yeah. that God didn't make a woman cookie cutter with one certain body type and the other phenotypes and one type of hair, one personality type. And, and that any woman who doesn't look or act like that is just scraps of dough, mm. right? I think in metaphors, I love I think because I love books and poetry. And and even if we get past those cookie cutter expectations, we still think that God has made this thin, white, demure, uber woman. And the rest mm-hmm. of us are just overbaked, burnt, full of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can do this analogy to death. I like doing analogies to death. It's my spiritual gift. But I think when we get back to seeing the image of Christ 
as where identity in Christ comes from, then we start to lose some of that identity in Christ getting whitewashed, right? right? A lot yeah. of times we, we become Gnostic, right? We skip the identity of who Christ actually was. And it just becomes this kind of bodiless soul of Christ that our identity is bound up in Christ's soul, but our identity is bound up in Christ's body too. And I mean, no one, no one suggests that we should have to be a man to be Christ-like, right? That's absurd. Right. But a lot of really good-hearted Christians, they still believe, whether they realize it or not, that to be Christ-like, you have to be white, though he wasn't, and well-behaved, though I would say he was sinless, but not exactly well-behaved. And that when we stop and remember that Jesus wasn't just brown, he was actually multi-ethnic, right? His lineage has Canaanite and Moabite and all of these other ethnicities in it. When we get out of that way of looking at Jesus as either bodiless or this perfect white thing Mm -hmm. and start thinking about how he inhabited his body in a certain way. I think when we get past seeing Jesus as this either bodiless soul or seeing Jesus as this white, scrawny, passive cookie cutter, then we can get past this idea of appearance doesn't matter because that's not what we mean, right? We've been trained by the majority culture to say non-white appearances don't matter and please be more white because that's the normal, but it's not, it's not normal. Being white isn't normal. And even when we think about it experientially or numerically, being white isn't consistent with who Jesus was on earth, who he is on the throne, or what his people look like throughout time and across the world. Jesus came to us in a brown body, and that gives joy and meaning to those of us who have dark skin, those of us who have light skin, those of us who are tall, who are short, who are thin, who are thick, because the image of God is more than a body, but the image of God is in all of our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Because it takes more than just one person to give the image of God. He blessed the man and the woman. He has blessed all of his people in his church. But I guess it raises the question of if someone is asking me to be more like the dominant culture and saying your identity is in Christ and what they really want is for me to be less loud or wear smaller earrings or to be more quiet and feminine, they're not actually asking me to look more like Jesus, right? They're, They're asking me to look more like them. And that's where the problem comes in. That when people say identity in Christ without doing the work of addressing, and this is for all of us, without doing the work to address our own white normativity, our own colorism, then we're not asking people to look like Jesus. We're asking them to look like us. We're trying to make God into our own image instead of seeing how God shows his image through his people. So in looking at the question of what is the interaction between identity development and this intersection of faith and culture, I think We've got to do the work on two levels. We've got to do the work on one, the normal human body isn't white. The normal human body has many different colors, right? The flesh crayon shouldn't be one crayon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It should be several. So we've got to do that work. And we've also got to do the work of how identity in Christ is a spiritual thing, but it's a spiritual thing that is tied to different bodies. It's tied to the way my body speaks to the goodness of God. It's tied to the way that your face has the image of God in it. It's tied to the way that my kids' personality quirks showcase the image of God. It's tied into the way that my pastor or this professor, that it takes all of us to Mm -hmm. show the full image of God, that 
just one of us isn't enough. So even if somebody looks fully like Jesus, right, what, whatever that means, even if somebody is Middle Eastern and male and is a woodworker, right, even then they can't fully give us the image of Christ, which then draws us to the identity in Christ. That's mm. still just a piece, but it's an important piece, right? And, it, and it's almost that we've bought into this false dichotomy that would tell us it's either body or it's mind, mm-hmm. right? And getting back to the gospel and to who Jesus was, which tells us, no, it's both. Skin tones of all different shades are beautiful and brains of all different kinds are beautiful. And we see that in the embodied presence of the living God. Yeah. Yeah. There's just no limit really to who God is. So there can't Mm -hmm. be a limit to how he's represented Mm -hmm. on earth through his people. You got it. Well, related to that, we often ask our guests about spiritual practices that they incorporate into their lives to grow closer to Jesus and understand identity in Christ. And similarly, you wrote about some spiritual practices in your book about how you lean into a deeper understanding of who you are as a multi-ethnic child of God. Could you say more about your own spiritual practices and how they've shaped the intersection of your identity and faith? Yeah, so I'm definitely learning those anew in this season of life, right? Finals week is ends like four days before the book launch. So (laughs) there's a lot going on right now. And so it is definitely a question of, oh, how do I draw near to the Lord when I'm tired? And there's so much going on. I just have so much at the back of my mind constantly. And I think also relearning is the point to begin with, right? It seems like we learn a lesson Mm -hmm. and we learn about God as much as our finite brains can. And then we got to go out in life and live life and do life. And then we forget some things. And so we have to come back to the throne, right? And relearn those lessons. That's kind of the cycle of life. What I've been learning specifically lately, I read Invitation to Solitude and Silence probably five, six, seven years ago now, and just thought, what a powerful book. Because what Ruth Haley Barton does in that book is she gives tiny, tangible steps. And so I mentioned some of those in the book, just asking the Lord for a prayer. Lord, what do you want me to pray to you? And that may be, Lord, help me see you, right? And and entering into that space with him just for a, a hot second, whenever you have time to say, okay, Lord, I've got three minutes <laughs> until my kids get off the bus, right? I'm going to take those three minutes and just try and sit with you. Or I, I've got three minutes until I woke up early and my alarm is going to go off in three minutes because my body is kind of tuned to it. Well, what am I going to do with those three minutes? Maybe this morning I'll choose instead of grumbling <laughs> to just sit there with the Lord for just a second. And then also reading Prophetic Lament by Dr. Sung Chan Ra and learning to lament well and learning that lament is not even something that we can say, well, sometimes you got to lament, but actually saying, no, it's, it's astoundingly biblical. And if we're not lamenting, we are actually out of the heart and character of God, if we are only ever saying everything's fine. And even going through the Psalms with a different eye and a different perspective, you know, we, we love as the deer pants, but man, we dress it up and ignore what it's really saying. I mean, that deer was dying. <laughs> He's panting for water because he will die if he doesn't mm. get some water. And the deer probably had disease and mangy fur and maybe his ribs showing through. And God loves the deer enough. He loves us enough to bring us this life-giving water, realizing that in the Psalms, so many of the scenes are not pretty, but -hmm. they're beautiful. They're, They're shocking. They're gorgeous. They're disgusting. They're unbelievably beautiful. And I think being able to enter into the Psalms that way 
feels a lot easier than always going to the Psalms and saying, what beautiful thing can I see today? That's nothing like my life because right now my life is in 2020 and things are hard. And instead saying, what way do I see God present in a broken world in those Psalms? And even, you know, reading, reading Job and, and being willing to sit with Job in the ashes while he scrapes his sores, gross, but you know, maybe that's what he did back then to, you know, it's not, is it that different than debriding a wound? I don't know, but being willing to sit with him, <laughs> which means being willing to sit with ourselves, right. And being willing to sit with our loved ones who are mm. going through unbelievable circumstances and then trusting God enough to squawk at him. And like I said earlier to say, Hey, where are you when there's all this brokenness and then trusting him and being humble enough that he's going to show up and he's going to lovingly chastise us and he's going to restore us and he's going to care for us that feels a lot more freeing and doable than for me a a devotional plan or you know trying to to read in this season there are good seasons for that but trying to read in a more organized fashion like I need to know God is with me in the chaos and that has to include that it's okay for my devotional life to be chaotic Mm. yeah I love that that idea of one it's not pretty but it's beautiful and also, yeah, if, if God's going to be with us in the chaos, our devotional life can also be chaotic. It doesn't need to be super organized and almost like a 13-step plan or whatever, <laughs> right? Right. Well, and, and the Jesus, feeling that need for Jesus and that desperate thirst for Jesus and remembering that he is our mixed ethnicity, like he had rough hands, he got hungry, he was passionate, right? Like that's who sits with us in the ashes. Mm. It's Jesus, mm-hmm. who was this brown man who loved and wept over Israel and yeah. all of God's people. The man of sorrows acquainted mm-hmm. with grief, right? Yeah. Exactly. So similar to the Psalms, you include some beautiful poetry from other multi-ethnic authors throughout the book, which I really appreciated and found to be a rich addition. And then you conclude, spoiler alert, with a poem of your own <laughs> that offers a glimpse into your own narrative would you be willing, uh, if you're allowed by your publisher, right, to read <laughs> right. a portion of it for our listeners? I realize it's just going to be a snippet, right? Because right. we can't give it all away. Well, because away. spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers. Yeah. You're going to want to buy yeah. this book anyway. So. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I would love to. I'd be honored to do so. The poem is called Where I'm From. And it's actually part of a really cool project by George Ali Lyon, I think. I would have to double check. But it's the Where I'm From project where you have kind of a template. And you go through and you fill out different things like a type of food. It's like Mad Libs, but not silly. You're actually filling out the thing it's asking for. So I'm from, what was the food you grew up with? I'm from, what smells do you remember from your childhood, right? I'm from, what town did you grow up in? What cousins did you grow up with? All these things that then you fill it in. And so it's really, again, it's kind of like Ruth Haley Barton's book in the sense that it's that baby step to writing poetry, right? It's Mm -hmm. that baby Mm -hmm. step to entering solitude and silence you don't just, you're not expected to go from being not a person of, of a certain skill to you're an expert overnight, but like, here's how to enter into it quietly. And what I loved about that was that there was room for, even though it's a a formula, Mm -hmm. there was room for expanding the formula for those of us who are not inside the norm, right? Mm -hmm. There was, it was expected and allowed that even as you were looking at how your life could fit into this formula, that when your life comes in, it disrupts the formula. And that was really healing and powerful for me to be able to, you know, how many school assignments have a lot of us shown up to, and it feels like we're the only ones that can't do it. 
mm-hmm. because our lives are different. So it feels like we're the only ones who can't fill out the the family tree because we don't know on that side of the family tree or you know can't fill out the writing assignment because we don't live with our parents or whatever it is. And so I love that right. this allowed for individuality even as it gathers us as a group to practice this together. So I'm going to attempt some of the Thai words in it. My Thai is not good. It's beyond not good, but I'm learning. So here we go. Where I'm from. I'm from Sawadika. Hello. Goodbye. Maipurai means never mind. And Sanuk because the land of smiles. From Lusnu Ampawasari and Victoria Wood. I'm from the New Mexican spirit of Inada. No problem, it was nothing. Mikasa es su casa, what's mine is yours, and side splitting laughter. I'm from folk music hymn sings, white dudes rapping, Motown and swing gospel choirs, orange clad monks chanting. I'm from the high plains of New Mexico and the lush greenery of Thailand, from potlucks and feasts, whether huevos rancheros, potted chicken falling off the bones tender, or spicy Q curry, rice with everything. And also somehow from Roger and Victoria Garrett, from the African tribe that my dad swore came over to America by train, and yet, from the Asian culture who points and laughs to diffuse awkward situations, who uses pungent nampla instead of table salt. I am from all the people who are in desperate need of gospel truth. Beautiful. And thank you too for sharing even about the process of writing it and how that in and of itself was healing for you. It's amazing to hear about that and then hear the actual poem. Was that the whole thing? No, no, that wasn't the whole thing. That was just a snippet. There's more. So please do buy the book so you can appreciate it and look up the where I'm from poem. Because even, gosh, that would be fun if people want to look it up and write their own and share that on social media. I think that would be really special. We'll have you send that to us maybe and we can link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. So absolutely. Cool. Finally, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote or scripture or song or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? And can you share why it resonates with you at this time? Yeah. So as I mentioned, how formative Ruth Haley Barton's invitation to solitude mm-hmm. and silence is, what I love is that we're asking the Lord for that breath prayer. There's value in just praying what's on our heart. But there's also, there's something very sacred and holy and special about coming to the throne and saying, I need you to give me the words that I'm going to pray back to you because I'm so lost without you. And so one of the the recent poems that God gave me, and I think it's probably given me in the past, but it's just, it is doing even more work on me now is the prayer of show me who I am, Lord. Mm. And just coming to the throne and saying that, I mean, that's, that's powerful, right? And it's terrifying. It's powerful. It's terrifying. It's humbling. And it's heartwarming Mm. to come to the God of the universe and know that he will tell us and it will be a beautiful, hard, amazing, uplifting, humbling answer. And so for me, I think as I'm thinking, even reflecting on the book and all of the work I did there and all the research I did there. And as I'm even thinking on the great conversation we've had and how much I've enjoyed that over the past hour or so 
there's something about bringing all of ourselves and asking God to show us how it fits together because we're so often asked to choose, right? We're so often asked to embrace a false binary or to leave one part of ourselves at the door and realizing that God doesn't do that. He doesn't ask us to leave some part of us behind to come to the throne. Even the parts of us that are sinful, he's redeeming. And there's mm. there's a gem and a nugget there that he's redeeming and he is burning away the dross, right? To get to the core of what's beneath. And so as I think about identity in Christ, what a gift it is to know that we get to image Christ, that the Holy Spirit gets to show us more of Christ and that God, the father teaches us about who Christ is and who we are, even though he's so unknowable, right? I mean, it's brain melting Mm -hmm. that to get back to things we have to comprehend, we have to go to that faith of a child, which says, show me who I am, Lord, show me how I'm yours. And I see that. I see that in nieces and nephews. I see that in my own kids. I see that in kids from church. I see that in the neighbor kids. That when we ask those simple questions, sometimes is when we have the most impressive or significant answers instead of what I want to do, right? As an academic, which right, is yeah. to the Lord and ask this grandiose question. And, and not even grandiose is though I'm being fake, but just, I love words. I love books. I love linguistics. I love using big words. I love reading. And that's not bad, but there's something about just coming before the throne and saying, okay, Lord, give me words. And when those words come back as show me who I am, Lord, there's a comfort in that. He's always going to tell us. He's always going to remind us of who we are, of how we're his, of how he loves us and gives us the faith of a child. And so it's very healing to be able to come back to that word. And, and again, that he gives us different words at different seasons and that he gives different words to different people, right? Anyone who does this breath prayer, this prayer exercise is going to have a very different experience mm-hmm. because again, it takes all of God's people to show who he is and to teach the world who he is and for us to teach each other who he is. And so it's been special even just talking with various people about what their breath prayers are, right? Or what quotes or scriptures are coming to them. And I think that's one of the beautiful things of social media, right? It has it, it has its yeah, absolutely. Downs. <laughs> but having these conversations with people and just hearing these snippets of here's what the Lord has been saying to me is powerful. And in this season in 2020, Oh man, what a gift just to be able to see how our journeys are different from each other's, but also how the Lord God is above them all and he is orchestrating our lives and then he's speaking different things for us to speak to each other and to encourage each other with. I love it. And I love even just how this question that we ask to each of our podcast guests, right? And we've asked it probably, I don't know, 30 times in the last year and a half. It's one of my favorite parts. (laughs) Absolutely. And no one has ever said the same thing ever. (laughs) I mean, there's, uh, which makes sense, right? There's a uniqueness, Mm -hmm. even if it was the same like idea, like a breath prayer or a phrase that someone has had God place on their heart. It's different for each person. It's beautiful to hear even just that idea of praying, show me who I am, Lord. You're right. Absolutely. God's going to respond differently and uniquely to each of us, even if we all prayed that. And that wouldn't that be kind of a cool thing to, if there was a whole community of people individually praying, show me who I am. And then corporately as well. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I might have to. Yeah, I'm going to have to hop on Twitter. That's so good. That's, <laughs> That's right. Idea. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm totally going to start praying this 
for myself, just in my own, you know, journey of Mm -hmm. understanding who I am in Jesus. And as a counselor, of course, too, I'm like, Ooh, this question is so powerful for those clients that would want to incorporate faith into their own journey. But anyway, so I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing about it. Yeah. And thank you so much for this time that you've spent with us and sharing about your book and your own journey in academia. There are other questions we didn't get to, but you write about them in the book. So I do encourage our listeners to pick up this book. Thank you. Yeah. It's um, from InterVarsity Press and available December 15th. Is that the right date? And an exciting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.